Okay, so this is Parsha is Parsha's Mishpatim. And of course, last week, we finished off the Parsha with the most significant event in all of human history, namely the revelation at Sinai. The Jewish people coalesced at the mountain and they listen in as God speaks to Moshe. They are privy to an experience that no nation has experienced ever since. They experience prophecy and live to tell the tale. Well, how was our Parsha going to begin? How our Parsha begins, I think, is going to be very instructive. This is the very first thing that the Torah conveys to us after Sinai. What comes after Sinai? What is the first message we are supposed to take away after the Sinai Revelation? Well, that's going to be the beginning of our Parsha. And I always like to think about, you know, what would you imagine? What would you guess if you didn't know where the Torah was going? If you are a newcomer, a novice to Torah, and you just read the Torah up to this point, what would you imagine comes next? I would imagine that if we ask that question to a thousand people who only read up to this junction of the Torah, none of them would guess that the very next item that should logically follow after the enslavement in Egypt and the ten plagues and the miracles and the exodus and the splitting of the sea and the song at the sea and eventually the revelation at Sinai, I imagine no one would say, you know what comes next logically? You know what makes sense to follow up this with? The laws of a Jewish bondsman. Of course, more generally, a parasha deals with matters of jurisprudence and laws and criminal matters and civil matters, but it starts off with the law of a Jewish bondsman. When you buy a Jewish bondsman, they work for you for six years, and on the seventh year, you send them free. And if they come and you're able to marry them off, you can marry them off. And what happens if year seven arrives and they say, I enjoy it here. I like my master. I like my wife. I like my children. I don't want to go free. Well, then there's a plan. You bring them to the court and you bring them to the door and you bring them to the doorpost and you bore a hole, you pierce their ear, and they work for you forever. And then, of course, the parsha proceeds to discuss all manner of laws related to civil and criminal matters, with murder or manslaughter, larceny, assault and battery, abduction, burglary, and what happens when you shoot the intruder, damages, theft, and so on. But it starts with a Jewish bondsman, specifically a Jewish bondsman who wants to remain a servant after his tenure concludes. Why is this the first law that is featured after Sinai? Think about it. You know, after Sinai, it's such a dramatic event. You have a captive audience. You have our attention. What are you going to start with? You start with such a fringe subject, something that, you know, we're reading it today. And we ask the question, how is this relevant to us? Of all things to talk about, this is what you start off with? Perhaps you should talk about something more lofty, like uh, the laws of the tabernacle or sacrifices or the laws of the land of Israel or something more grand, more dignified, more important than the laws of someone who steals money, doesn't have money to pay, and gets sold as a bondsman to pay for what they stole. So to me, it seems obvious that if this is the first law, 
told to us after Sinai, invariably this law is going to reveal to us what the essence of Sinai is all about and how to absorb the great lessons of this paramount event of our history. Let's examine this law in greater detail. We have a Jewish bondsman. Rashi tells us that a Jewish bondsman ends up as a bondsman only if they fulfill one of two criteria. Either they steal money and don't have money to pay back, the court will sell them as a servant for six years. Alternatively, they're out of luck, they're out of money, they're out of resources, they have no way to get out of their quagmire, then they can sell themselves voluntarily as a servant. And they work for six years. And in the event that they want to extend their servitude, their bondage, they can increase that, they can extend it by having their ear pierced by their master. Why? Why do we have this really strange ceremony to extend the tenure of a Jewish bondsman? So Rashi tells us something really interesting. Rashi says, well, first he explains why it's the right ear and not the left ear. But why is this person being pierced in the ear? So Rashi says, there are two reasons why. Because there are two reasons why a Jewish bondsman is sold. For each one of those reasons, there's a reason why we pierce their ear. Well, in the event that they stole money and didn't have any money to pay back, well, then they violated the law of Sinai. At Sinai, it said, thou shalt not steal. And this person stole. You didn't listen to Sinai? Your ear gets pierced. You didn't listen to the message of thou shalt not steal? Your ear did not absorb this message, and therefore your ear gets pierced. Alternatively, if someone voluntarily sells themselves as a bondsman, they also fail to hear the message of Sinai, because at Sinai, we were told to be servants of God. And this person becomes a servant of another servant of God. And why the door? Rashi explains, because the door and the doorpost, that symbolized, that signified, that marked the fact that God chose us as his nation. He is the God and we are his people. When he jumped over the Jewish households in Egypt, when they slathered the door and the doorpost with the blood of the pastoral sacrifice. And therefore, because this person does not want to be subjected to God exclusively, they want to be subjected to one of God's subjects. Therefore, we pierce them in the ear, by the door, by the doorpost. What a fascinating law. What a fascinating Rashi. Someone who steals or voluntarily wants to sell themselves, you could do it for six years. But if the servant, if the bondsman wants to extend it, you take them to the door and you pierce their ear because they did not heed the message of Sinai. At Sinai, he heard, or he should have heard, not to steal, and he stole nonetheless. At Sinai, he heard there were servants of God, and he chose to be a servant of another servant. Very intriguing idea. Our question of why start over here, this is addressed by Rashi. This episode demonstrates the best example of someone who missed the message of Sinai. He failed to heed the messages of Sinai. He stole, he sold himself as a slave and didn't subject himself to God exclusively and therefore his ear is pierced as a result. And therefore, if we're going to finish off the Sinai story, 
we're going to give an example of someone who failed to absorb it as a warning to us. Don't copy the bondsman. Don't copy the person that got sold as a slave, as a servant. He didn't listen. Make sure that you, in fact, listen. To exhort us, to encourage us to listen to the message of Sinai and to not suffer the fate of the Jewish bondsman. That's why we start off right after the Sinai narrative, we start off with this law. But we have some questions. We have a battery of questions. First of all, the whole idea in general of someone being sold as a servant, as a bondsman, it's very foreign to us. It's something that, you know, modern sensibilities seems to have a problem with. Today, in Western countries, if someone steals, well, we imprison them. We don't believe in selling them as a bondsman or as a servant or as a slave, whatever term you want to use for it. So what is the reason why the Torah does this? A. B. We have this whole law of what happens if the bondsman wants to extend his servitude. Seven years have come. It's the seventh year. You finished your term of six years and you want to extend it. Why would I want to do that? Who, who wants to extend their servitude? Moreover, we're told that his ear is pierced. Why? Because he didn't listen to Sinai. He stole, failed to listen to the message of Sinai. He sold himself as a servant, as a bondsman, and failed to heed the message of Sinai. But here's the question. Question number three. Why is he pierced now? When he stole and then he was sold, that's when he should have been pierced, not subsequently when he chooses to extend his bondage. Furthermore, you know, at Sinai, there were Ten Commandments. One of them is not to steal. But there are a whole bunch more commandments. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet, etc. There are a lot of criminals who violate the message of Sinai. But the only one whose ear is pierced is the thief. What about the murderer? What about the adulterer? What about someone who covets? What about someone who violates the Shabbos? What about someone who fails to honor their parents? They all didn't listen to Sinai. Yet somehow this one, the thief specifically, is pointed to and said he is the one who fails to heed the call of Sinai. And here's my favorite question. And this is a classic Parsha podcast question. So this person didn't listen to Sinai. But why are we piercing his ear? Maybe we should give him a piercing by his eye. Because he failed to heed what he saw at Sinai. After all, Sinai was a visual experience as well. Rashi tells us that there were blind people who were all healed to see what happened at Sinai. In fact, we read in 2015, chapter 20, verse 15, V'chol ha'amroim es the nation is seeing. Moshe tells the Jewish people, you saw God speak to you from the heavens. We've all seen piercings in the eye. You could do it in a safe manner. Why are we piercing the ear of the Jewish bondsman who wants to extend his servitude? Because he didn't listen to the message of Sinai. Maybe we should pierce him in the eye, near the eye, for failing to follow what he saw at Sinai. So here's the idea I want to suggest. 
Here's the idea for the 1100th or 1100th. How do you say that? 1100th? For the episode that marks episode number 1100, here's the idea I want to suggest. Sinai was a comprehensive experience. The nation saw things. And the hope is the nation heard things as well. There was a visual Sinai experience and there was an auditory Sinai experience. The Jewish slave, the Jewish servant, the Jewish bondsman who wants to extend the servitude is not necessarily violating what they saw at Sinai. They're violating what they should have heard at Sinai. Let's explain. There are many places in Jewish literature and Jewish philosophy where we see a difference between seeing, witnessing with your eyes, and hearing, listening with your ears. So, for example, we read right before the Sinai Revelation, chapter 19, verse 3 through 6. Moshe tells the Jewish people, or Moshe is commanded by God to tell the Jewish people, that you saw, Atem Reisem, you saw what God did to Egypt, and now it's time to listen. And if you listen, you'll be a cherished nation, and you'll become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you should speak to the children of Israel. You saw in Egypt, that's step one, translating that into listening, into hearing, that is the key to becoming the cherished people, the chosen nation, to get the Torah, to be the kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There's the idea, and this is something we spoke about in the past, there's the idea that when you see something, it's an opportunity to absorb it, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the lesson has, in fact, been integrated. You see it, but now it's time to absorb it. Right after the splitting of the sea, the nation witnessed amazing things. And we read in chapter 15, verse 26, God says to the Jewish people, if you listen, you saw something now, now it's time to listen. If you listen now to the voice of Hashem your God, I will be your healer. When you see something, it's an opportunity to absorb that message, to digest that message, to integrate that message to listen. After you see something, it's time to absorb it, to make it yours. And if you fail to listen, even though you have seen it, it could actually be quite harmful and deleterious. So my favorite example of this is in Parshas Balak. Balak is the king of Moab, and he's worried about the Jewish people who are destroying all his neighbors, and he hires Bilam to go curse the Jewish people. And that Parsha, we read about, of course, in a couple of weeks, really a couple of months, in the book of Numbers, it starts off, Vayar Balak ben Sipar. Balak, the king of Moab, he saw all that Israel did to the Amorites. And what did he do? He devised a plot, a heinous plot, to try to destroy his enemies. Last week's parasha, Parshas Yisro, starts off with a very similar verse. Yisro encountered what the Jewish people did, Jethro encountered what the Jewish people did to the Egyptians, in the same way that Balak encountered what the Jewish people did to the Amorites. But the difference is, 
that Jethro heard, Vayishma Yisro, and Jethro heard. Talmud actually tells us that Jethro and Balak were relatives, and they both encountered the dominance of Israel. And one of them was inspired to join, to convert, to upgrade himself and integrate himself into the Jewish people. And that was Jethro. And he did that because he heard. Whereas Balak did not hear, he just saw, and he was inspired to curse, to rebel. In Parsha Shlach, we read about the spies. Rashi tells us they saw, but they didn't hear. In Parsha's Korach, we read about Korach, the first cousin of Moshe, who launched an insurrection, who mutinied against his cousin. Why, Rashi tells us, his eyes led him astray. He saw things, but he didn't listen. In the end of our parasha, we read about the 70 elders and the two sons of Aaron, not Devon of you. They saw things. They saw. They saw. But they didn't listen. Rashi tells us, as a result of that, they received a death sentence that was implemented later on in the Torah. So there's a dynamic all over Jewish philosophy and Jewish literature that vision, seeing something, when that vision is unmoored with listening, with hearing, that is actually very dangerous. In fact, one of the definitions of God is that God is ro'eh, God sees, but is unseen. Ro'ev enonire. Our eyes, our field of vision, is engineered to make us not see God. To connect to God, you have to listen. You have to hear. You have to listen to tradition. You have to listen to your heart. You have to listen to your messages. You have to listen to Sinai. In the most powerful prayer that we say every day, our declaration of faith, where we commit every single day to forfeit our lives in martyrdom for God, should the opportunity arise, we say, Shema Israel, listen, hear, O Israel, listen. And we cover our eyes. The way to absorb the message is to not rely on the eyes alone, but to listen. Balak, he saw. He saw the damage to the Jewish people, but he didn't listen. As a result of that, he went astray and lived to suffer the consequences. Jethro, perhaps he saw as well, but he listened. He heard. Vayishma Yisro. He absorbed the message and he changed his life. He was an idolater but he joined the nation and became a great believer and a great hero of our people. The way to connect to God is via sound. God listens to our prayer. When we pray, the prayer has to be audible. In one of my grandfather's notes, I found the following sentence that I love so much I want to share with you. The only sense that connects us with the spiritual world is the ability to listen. A couple of years ago, I told you that I was in Canada. And in Canada, they also have July 4th. They also have independence, but it's not July 4th. It's July 1st. 
that's when they gained their independence. And they also have a tradition of fireworks and celebration. And we were watching the fireworks and you see salvos of fireworks and the explosions that accompany them. But what's always interesting to me is that when the final blast of fireworks that you see is over, you wait two seconds and you hear the boom. You hear the sonic boom that comes with it. And of course, we know the reason why. Light travels at around 300,000 kilometers a second. I think it's like 186,000 miles a second. What is that? Like uh, eight times around Earth in a second? It's pretty fast. Audio sound also travels pretty fast, around 600 miles an hour, which is very fast, but not quite as fast as light. Light is basically instantaneous. What you see is instant. And what you learn when you see something instantly, it could flash by you. You could perceive it right away, but then it's gone. When you hear something, it's after you see something, you wait a second, you allow that message to be absorbed. You allow it to become digested within you. That's when the message truly resonates. That's when that message is going to stick. Before Sinai, we read about Jethro. He was always listening. And therefore, his story serves as a preparation for Sinai. You want to have a Sinai revelation beforehand, you got to read about Jethro. He's the proper introduction to Sinai. And right afterwards, we read about the Jewish bondsman. The bondsman, of course, is pierced in his ear. Not his eye. The flaw is not that he didn't encounter the message. He didn't see it. The flaw is that he failed to absorb it. He didn't listen. He saw the message of Sinai, but he failed to hear it. It didn't penetrate. The flaw is in his ear, not his eye. So the preparation for Sinai is Jethro. He listened. And the aftermath of Sinai is the bondsman. He's an example of someone who failed to listen. He failed to listen to Sinai. He stole. He failed to listen to Sinai. He voluntarily sold himself as a slave. And therefore, he is the warning. He is the cautionary tale. After you have this amazing experience of Sinai, don't lose it by not listening. But again, some questions remain. We asked the original questions. What's the point of selling someone as a slave, as a servant, as a bondsman? Why would someone extend it? If we're piercing them because they didn't listen to Sinai, we should pierce them right away, not after the six-year tenure is over, and then they choose to extend their servitude. And finally, why is it only the thief who becomes a bondsman who wants to extend his tenure? Why is only that person pierced and not everyone else, the person age God's name in vain, the idolater, the murderer, etc.? So the answer is, I want to propose... If there's something unique about the bondsman that does not apply to all those other cases. There is a reason why the Torah tells us that someone who robs someone else is sold as a bondsman. Our society, 
Western society, we're advanced, we're progressive, we're moral. But what do they do? You have a criminal. Criminal. And they were found guilty by a righteous court. They are a thief. Our society puts them in a cage as if it was a kennel for dogs. And you surround them with the worst people in the world. And no wonder the rates of recidivism are through the roof. Instead of rehabilitating people, sadly, our society makes them worse criminals. The Torah doesn't do that. The Torah doesn't give up on people. Someone is a criminal. They're a criminal. And they were found guilty by a Jewish court of law that turned over every stone to try to find out what actually happened. And it turns out this person is a rotten egg, a rotten apple, a black sheep. This person is a criminal. What's the Torah solution? The Torah's solution is to try to rehabilitate them, to try to rectify them, to try to improve them. And I imagine that there's a certain understanding here. Why does someone end up like this? It's possible that they, you know, that they were dealt a poor hand in life. They probably didn't have a strong family. Maybe they didn't have a great education. Maybe they were raised poorly. Maybe they had a broken family. We don't know what brought someone to this situation, but we can suspect that they didn't really have great role models growing up. And sadly, we have a Jew who became a thief. We give him six years to rehabilitate themselves. We find a nice, a special family. The Talmud tells us that someone who acquires a Jewish bondsman is actually acquiring for themselves a master. Because the laws of the sensitivity of how we have to treat our bondsmen are very exhaustive, are very strict. The Talmud tells us, for example, if you only have one bed or one pill, you got to give it to your Jewish slave, your Jewish servant, your Jewish bondsman. You have to bring someone into your house who's a criminal, and you have to treat them as if they're a family member. The only reason why someone would even do that is someone who is a gentle and kind and sweet person who deeply cares about their brethren, and they genuinely want to help. And they're willing to invest six years of their life to help this person. And the criminal comes and he joins this family. And for six years, he sees how they live, sees how they treat each other with respect, with dignity, sees what they talk about, sees how they behave, sees their interactions, and is themselves, perhaps for the first time in their lives, treated with dignity, with respect, They get tended to. They're with a family, a happy family, a healthy family, perhaps the first time in a safe environment in their lives. They're not thrown into the cages with all the other criminals. They're uplifted. They're elevated. And they are now being given a second chance. Six years to change your life. This loving family has to be a very special family. Who else is willing to undertake A master. You want a master? You want someone that you now have to train to take care of? They're not a family member. They're a criminal. Who wants to bring a criminal to their house? Only a special family who believe in the goodness of every soul, of every Jew. 
the criminal comes and joins his family. And maybe for the first time in his life is in a happy environment, a safe environment, a loving environment. And for six years, he's being taught a lesson, how to behave, what's proper, how to live a good life. Look at these people. Look how they treat each other. Look how moral they are in their behavior. Look how happy their home is. The objective of this rehabilitation period is to help fix them, to help prime them to return to society, to return to normal life. And what happens after six years? The guy wants to stay. Now, it's understandable. He enjoys it. But he is, for a second time, failing to listen. The bondsman is someone who failed to listen to the message of Sinai and was given a second chance and failed a second time. He didn't listen to the message of Sinai and he stole. He didn't listen to the message of Sinai and he wanted another master. After six years of rehabilitation, he still has not listened. Then, and only then, his ear gets pierced. The Torah is full of lessons. The Torah is replete with life-changing lessons for us. And right before Sinai, we read about how to prepare for it. What is the attitude that we should have coming in? We read about Jethro. Jethro heard. He was always listening to his messages. And then we have Sinai. And we have the Torah. And right afterwards, we read about the bondsman. And the bondsman is someone who failed to listen, who failed to hear twice. First, when he stole or voluntarily sold himself as a slave initially. And secondly, when he failed to listen to six years of rehabilitation, to six years of training, he didn't take that message either. And then his ear is pierced. Torah, Sinai, this is the most amazing lessons in the world. It's the godly wisdom. But there are some prerequisites. The prerequisite is you have to listen to those messages. You can't just encounter those messages, see them, perceive them, but that's it. It's instant flash, a flash of the fireworks. You see it, boom, and it's gone. You don't even ruminate upon it for a second to allow it to be absorbed. If you don't have that attitude, Torah is not going to be very helpful to you. And ideally, we should be like Jethro. Even before he got Torah, he was already primed to listen. If that doesn't work, at a minimum, when we hear the messages of the Torah, we should be in a posture of listening. If that fails too, the Almighty will grant us a period of rehabilitation. We'll get a lesson, just like the bondsman. The bondsman was given a second chance. But in general, this is the format. You mess up, you didn't listen to sign round one, you're given another opportunity. If that fails, you struck out. If you don't prepare to listen beforehand, and you don't listen during Sinai, and you don't even listen after you were given the chance to rehabilitate, 
after the third chance to listen, you struck out and your ear is pierced. We have a Torah. We have amazing lessons. We have to listen. We can be transformed. We can be changed, provided that we hear those lessons, that we absorb those messages. We listen like Jethro. We're not quite like the bondsmen. And hopefully our ears will indeed hear and absorb the messages of Sinai. Let's get this week's exquisite insight. Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. Our parsha, of course, contains many, many, many mitzvos, many different laws. Among the multitudes of mitzvos featured in our parsha are several of the laws of kosher. So, for example, twenty-two thirty, we read, You should not eat a trefa. A trefa is a kind of animal, even though the animal itself, the animal species, is a kosher species. Imagine you have a cow. A cow is a kosher animal. But if the animal is ripped or torn, it has some sort of fatal injury, then it is forbidden to be consumed even if it is slaughtered properly. So even if you have a kosher animal and it's processed in a kosher fashion, if it is a trefa, that's where the term treif comes, not kosher. If it is a trefa, it is not kosher. Moreover, we have the laws of milk and meat. The verse tells us in 2318, Lo should not cook a kid in its mother's milk. That tells us we cannot mix milk and meat. So whenever we deal with the laws of kosher, it always bothers, it bothers us, you know, the moral laws of the Torah, the philosophical laws of the Torah, the intellectual laws of the Torah always make sense to us. But this idea, you know, there's no victim, it's a victimless crime. No one's hurt if you eat not kosher. What are you going to do with the animal? The animal, the bovine was ripped apart, but the animal now, the meat's just as good as if it wasn't ripped apart. If the meat is kosher and the milk is kosher, what difference does it make if we put them together, we do a mixture of the two? The laws of kosher always seem to be very difficult for us to absorb. So the Talmud tells us something very fascinating. The Talmud tells us that our heart, our soul, is, at least by default, very sensitive. It's very sensitive to spiritual matters. But when someone eats not kosher, their heart gets dulled, gets calloused, gets desensitized. And the Masil Sisharim writes, this is a quote, the forbidden foods... They insert impurity in the heart and soul of a person to the degree that the holiness of God departs from him. And he quotes the verse in the Talmud that true knowledge and the spirit of intellect get banished from someone who eats non-kosher. And instead, the person gets submerged in the animalistic physicality of the world, and they become less sensitive to spiritual matters. Here's the exquisite insight. As they just tell us that this even applies to small children. Ordinarily, if someone's a small child, well, they're not intelligent, you know, they're not mature. They're a small child. What do they know? They don't know about the laws of Torah and Sinai and Mitzvah. They don't know anything about that. They don't need that stuff. 
So they are not really impacted by the sin. However, when it comes to the laws of kosher, because it affects almost like the physiology of a person's soul and heart, that if someone eats not kosher, even as a child, it's going to impact them forever. So the Talmud tells us of a sage, one of the sages of the Jewish people, who went awry and became a heretic. In our history, of course, we had many great sages and rabbis and leaders. And there's only one example of someone who was a bona fide, genuine sage, on par with all the greatest sages of the generation, who became a heretic. And his name was Elisha ben Avuya, and he eventually became known as Acher, the other one. And our sages tell us that the reason why this person, who again was one of the great sages of the land, he was the primary teacher of Rabbi Meir, the author, or the primary author of the Mishnah, the reason why he went astray is because when he was in utero, his mother was pregnant with him, and she passed by an idolatrous temple, and she smelled the smell of the pork cooking, and she was overcome with desire. She had a craving, and she went in there, and she took a little bit of the non-kosher food. That meat began quivering and coursing within her like venom of a poisonous snake, and that actually infected, the Talmud tells us, or the sages tell us, her unborn child, and even though he was a great sage, there was something corrupted with his heart, and that eventually manifested later on when he became a heretic. Similarly, earlier on in the book of Exodus, chapter 2, we read about Moshe. Moshe was born, and as a very young kid, his mother placed him in the Nile, and he was picked up and adopted by the princess of Egypt, by Pharaoh's daughter. But she needed a wet nurse to nurse the child. And Rashi tells us that she brought the child to all kinds of Egyptian wet nurses and Moshe refused to suckle from the non-Jewish women who were eating non-kosher. Until eventually Moshe's own biological mother was hired as a Jewish wet nurse and in this great twist of irony, Pharaoh's daughter paid Moshe's mother to nurse Moshe because she did not know that they were actually related. So it was a great gig. The mother would have been very happy to nurse the baby for free, and now she got paid for it. But why did Moshe, why did he refrain from suckling from those women? Because he sensed, or at least there was a premonition that he was going to be special. And his heart had to be maintained in its pristine condition. You can't tamper with it at all. And if a woman eats non-kosher, that's going to go into her breast milk and that will affect the child who consumes that. And here's the actual insight I want to share with you. There is the flip side of this. Just as the non-kosher food has an adverse effect on the person who consumes it, even if it's done vicariously via mom, there is someone who had the reverse of that. 
we're told that the great Rabbi Judah the Prince, who codified the Mishnah, when he was a young kid, he was born, that was during the reign of Hadrian, and Hadrian made a rule that circumcision is forbidden. Any Jewish boy that gets circumcised is going to be executed together with that boy's mother. And young Judah, who was the son of the prince of Israel, the leader of the Jewish people, he was, of course, circumcised. And the Romans demanded that he be brought to Rome to be inspected to find out if he, in fact, is guilty of this crime. And they would take mom and baby and chuck him off a cliff. On the way to Rome, Rabbi Judah the prince's mother met another woman with a baby as well, a Roman woman. And they befriended each other in the path from Judah, from Israel to Rome. And they started chatting and eventually Rabbi Judah the prince's mother tells this Roman woman about why she's going to Rome because my child's circumcised and then they're going to kill him. So they hatch a plan and they swap babies. And Rabbi Judah the prince is taken by this Roman woman and Rabbi Judah the prince's mother takes this Roman baby and presents him as if this is her baby. And of course, the baby is uncircumcised. And they say, okay, well, you're good. Go back to Israel. On the way back, she meets the Roman woman again, and they swap babies again. Now, they just tell us that that Roman baby eventually grows up to being none other than Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, eventually the emperor of Rome. But also someone who befriended Rabbi Judah the Prince, and gave him political cover to be able to codify the Mishnah, and according to our sages, actually converted and became a Jew. Where did he have this holiness from? How does someone who grows up a Roman, Roman nobility, and he becomes a Jew, and he becomes so sensitive to matters of spirituality, and he becomes interested in converting? That came from him suckling this holy food and integrating that holiness into him that inspired him that motivated him that created the grounds for this young child eventually to grow up and to become a great hero in his own right we're told you are what you eat have you ever heard that you are what you eat if you eat good foods the ones told to us by God as being good for you, your soul will be elevated. And if you do the opposite, you will have to suffer the consequences. Your soul will be dulled. We have this amazing example of someone who ate kosher and was transformed forever, changing the course of all of Jewish history along the way. I thank you for listening. This has been the 1100th episode of all the podcasts, again, cumulatively, not just the Parsha podcast, but all the other podcasts. Give them all a listen. Thank you for listening. Have an amazing rest of your day. Have a fantastic rest of your week and have a splendid, sensational, spectacular, fantabulous Shabbos upcoming. And please don't help the Almighty.
We will talk again next week.